Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. We've got a couple of guests lined up today that are just going to be fantastic. And before we get to them, I wanted to mention a couple of things about our upcoming issue of Naval History Magazine that just went to the presses uh, last week. It's the July-August issue of Naval History. It's going to have a picture on the cover of Tom Hanks in, in the movie Greyhound. Uh, we've got a whole package of content dedicated to that movie and to that topic. The topic is uh, World War II in the Atlantic, the um, you know battle against the wolf packs of German submarines, convoy operations, all those things. And uh, I read the, mo- the, uh, the book by C.S. Forrester, The Good Shepherd, uh, over the weekend. It is a fantastic novel. came out in 1955. Uh, Forrester, as you know, is the, also the author of the, uh, the Hornblower series of uh, novels of the Age of Sail. Uh, but this book, The Good Shepherd, is the book on which Tom Hanks and company uh, based the book or based the movie Greyhound. And we've been tracking that movie for a while now. Sony Pictures produced it. They've recently sold it to Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Apple TV, we hope, are, is going to release it this summer, uh, and we've got a big, big section of content uh, in the August issue of Naval History, uh, which will be available on newsstands, uh, and also you can uh, subscribe to Naval History Magazine, find it on uh, usni.org, Naval History, uh, subscribe, it's an amazing uh, magazine, comes out every other month, plus online uh, exclusive content but that whole content package in the August issue of Naval History coming to you soon. And if the, um, uh, if the movie Greyhound by Tom Hanks is half as good as C.S. Forrester's book is, uh, it'll be a fantastic movie, particularly for our, our audience. Let's uh, go ahead and introduce our guests. Yeah, so joining us uh, this morning from uh, Coast Guard Air Station Houston is Commander Marcus Kennedy. He is the commanding officer of the Coast Guard Air Station down there, so on watch right now for, uh, you know, the, the normal hurricane season that's kind of starting to brew up in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and Marcus wrote an article in Proceedings, and it is called, uh, apropos of what's going on in the world right now, what's going on in America right now, racial tension in America requires intrusive military leadership. So, Marcus, uh, thanks for joining us on the Proceedings podcast. Thank you for having me. And our other guest is uh, Navy Chief Alicia Malone. She's joining us from Norfolk, where she works at the uh, headquarters of the Navy Reserve and is soon to be headed to uh, San Antonio Class LPD, back to sea duty. Uh, Chief Malone, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, Marcus, let's just start out with you. Uh, So recap for our our listeners who might, might not have had the chance to read your article yet. Uh, what prompted you to, to write this? Really what prompted me to write this article was because um, in the wake of a number of recent events, the Ahmad Arbery situation in South Georgia, uh, the Breonna Taylor situation in Louisville, Kentucky, the Christian Cooper situation in New York. That was the situation where um, a uh, white female called the cops on a black man in Central Park and basically gave a false report about him attacking her. And then the killing of George Floyd. When those events came together, I found myself basically really in a lot of pain. And I actually was pulling up to work on a Friday And I just took a minute. I just took the minute to myself in my car to process all the things that were going on and to get myself to the point where I could walk in and be the commanding officer that the unit needed me to be, to lead the men and women here, to smile, to basically put on a show, to put on a mask that says that I'm doing okay and that these things that are going on in society aren't bothering me. And I was finding that a little tough to do. And I ended up talking to a couple of friends and we just simply were talking about 
how nice it would have been if somebody were to check up on us, if one of our supervisors were to reach out and just simply ask, how are we doing? How nice it would be for that pain that we were feeling to be recognized. So that's what got me thinking about doing something. I ended up talking to a junior officer later that day, and he was feeling the same way. And he was actually a little bit more frustrated at the moment because at his workplace, the conversation about these events only focused on the rioting and the looting. It didn't focus on the actual injustice. And it was clear to him that his shipmates, the people that he worked with, what, what they were truly concerned with. They were concerned with storefronts and buildings being burned, cars being burned. They were more concerned about those things than the loss of life. And that's something that really frustrated him. And it just further got me thinking that the organization and what we can do individually, there's just more that, that can be done. So I ended up writing the article. Um, and I wrote it from a personal standpoint because I wanted to make it clear that these were my feelings and what I thought would be important in the moment. But I did not want to speak for a larger group. But I want to make it, I want to make it clear that because I feel this way doesn't necessarily mean every African American feels the exact same way. So I just wanted to write the article. It was a little bit therapeutic for me, which is something I didn't realize. It's kind of the first time I've done something like this. And um, I just went off on that journey, wrote the article, and uh, put it out there. So I'm fascinated by the concept of the mask, and I'd like to explore the distance between what you very powerfully describe in your opening paragraph. I think you, you set the scene very vividly about you hide your pain as a function of, of your day job, or you wear the mask in order to get it done. So, Chief, does this does that concept resonate with you? Where where are you emotionally and attitudinally in the wake of the George Floyd murder? I can definitely identify with a lot of the statements and feelings that Commander Kennedy described in his article, um, feeling hurt and um, and frustrated. And to be honest with you, I've already in a lot of People already wear the mask. I just think now um, the mask is getting suffocating in light of the recent events. Um, I think that I am extremely excited to see that those conversations that need to be had, those daunting, you know, sensitive conversations that need to be had are actually being had right now because there's been a culture of you don't talk about certain things in the workplace. You don't talk about race. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics. And um, a lot of times the culture is such that um, there's a need to pretend like it does not happen in the workplace. Um, fear that people will assume you're just trying to play the race card. Um, to assume that people won't understand. Um, if I could, I'd like to share a, uh, a very quick story. I was a very young um, junior sailor, and uh, I had a senior enlisted leader, and I felt as though um, he had some uh, racial bias. I was the only African-American sailor. He would speak to the entire department when he came to work, except for me, Um he would smile and have conversations with other staff members, except for myself. I would sit in my car and cry and, and, and just kind of dread going into work. And I remember a particular event where um, it was around Christmas time. He had his son in the workplace and I was helping him uh, wrap a gift for his wife, the child's mother. And 
I said, hey, you know, I have a son around your age. Maybe uh, you guys can play together. And he said to me, my dad doesn't allow me to play with N-words. And um, it hurt. And, you know, the feeling that I always felt uh, about the racial bias that he had shown me, it kind of validated that uh, through his son's comments. And even then, I was afraid to speak out. And that's just not a healthy culture. So when I say that, I've always worn the mask. The mask is just, I'm just suffocating in it. Um, that's kind of what I mean. So uh, about what year was that, Chief? Uh, I would probably say about 2007. Yeah, so not not that long ago. We're not talking about 1964 not here. 2007, 2008, yes. Yeah. So I think the thing that jumps out at at me as a, 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 a white man who spent his career in naval aviation is when we're talking to the world, we like to say that the military, particularly the Navy and, and sea services are colorblind. So it's worse that we're not allowed to talk about it. It's almost like we've sort of whitewashed it in a way that, that it's just like, well, we're colorblind. That's the end of it. Right. So I think what we're introducing here is a conversation that gets into sort of the, the high fidelity parts of the black experience in the Navy and the Coast Guard. Um, that story is super powerful, and I think it jumps out um, exactly what we're talking about. So, uh, Commander, I'd, I'd ask you it, not to drop a dime on anyone, but but what are some of the manifestations of your frustration in terms of how your career has gone that you've seen evidence, either really obnoxious or even tacit evidence of, of racial bias? I have not experienced that level. I will be I will be honest with you. Um, that's very frustrating to hear. And I, I would also, uh, before I get back to your question, I would like to point out that in Chief's story, I would be willing to put, to bet money that those that were around the supervisor knew his his mindset you you can't hide that sort of racism completely and if chief felt it i'm pretty sure other supervisors saw it i'm pretty sure he had conversations where he let things be known and they allowed it what was missed is an accountability there was no accountability for that supervisor. There was nothing that was going to prevent him from, from having those words, using that language, making Chief feel the way that Chief felt. Nobody was there to put their arms and protect Chief. They allowed this supervisor to continue on with that mindset and go throughout his career. And that is something that I have seen in a few different instances. Like I said, me personally, I have not I have not come across or directly dealt with a situation where it was so obvious that it was racial. But I will say that when you think about microaggressions, I remember having a conversation with a bunch of classmates at the Coast Guard Academy, and there was a conversation about affirmative action. And there was clear that some of my classmates were, they were opposed to affirmative action, and they were really passionate about it. And they were talking about how that affected how people got into the Coast Guard Academy, the how they received an appointment. Now, I was in a class that we started out with about 270 students, and there were seven African Americans. So it had me thinking, if you're upset about, let's say all seven of us got here because of affirmative action, which obviously is not the case. But if you're upset that seven of us out of over 276 students got here, then 
did you want none of us here? Was that was that going to make you feel okay? And why is the assumption? I will tell you that what I have experienced is that every time I've received a certain level of success in the organization, whether that is getting to the academy, whether that is getting into flight school, getting into grad school, earning a highly sought after special assignment, and probably even my current position as commanding officer, there was always somewhere, somehow I heard the reason why I got it was because I was African-American. The reason why I was given this opportunity is because the organization is pushing diversity. So I was never looked at as somebody that rightfully earned what they got through their performance. So what that end up causes me to do is now I have to, when I perform, when I do the job, not only do I have to excel in the job like everybody else, but I'm already starting from the negative because the perception is that I only got the job because of some ulterior motive. I have experienced that. I do remember one time when I was at the academy, I was, this is, I would say, it was kind of a funny story, but it definitely highlights people, how quickly they assume certain things. So I was just in the gym playing basketball, just in between classes, working on my jump shot. And a senior officer at the academy walks by, says hello, we explain pleasantries, and then he left, I continue playing. Well, after that, that senior officer got concerned because he knew that there was a freshman on the team, and I was a freshman, there was a freshman on the team that was struggling, struggling academically. And his concern was, why is the athlete that is struggling in the gym instead of focusing on his grades? Seems like, you know, concern, obvious thing. The problem was, was I was not that freshman. He just assumed that I was. And nothing was specifically stated, but it was obvious to me that he quickly assumed that it was the African-American freshman that was struggling with grades, not any of the other freshmen. So was that bias pointed out at the time? Did anybody go, whoa, that's just wrong thinking to the guy who made the accusation or who connected those dots? He had a, he had the conversation with my head coach. And my head coach was very upset because he ended up letting me know and I could tell that he was upset. I believe, he, I'm not sure specifically what my head coach told that senior officer, but he let the senior officer know that I was not the freshman that he was thinking that I was. But it was very clear to me how upset my head coach was. And, and once again, I was fortunate because my head coach at that moment put his arms around me. And once again, that that is what the piece that I was that I heard was missing from Chief's story. It didn't seem like anybody put their arms around Chief to make sure she was protected. And I've always said, I love my organization. I love the Coast Guard. I think a lot of times people people end up villainizing people that are trying to improve an organization as if they don't like the organization. And I think that's absolutely the wrong way to look at it. If you have a house, you love the house. If you've been in the house 10, 15 years, you love the house. Just because you decide to renovate the kitchen, get some new countertops, doesn't mean that you stop loving the house. It actually says that because you decided not to move and you decided to stay right there, 
and make that house better, to me, it actually sounds like you like that house even more. And I think the organization in this country is the same way. Those of us that are in the organization that are fighting to improve the organization, just like we're fighting to improve society, it's not because we dislike the organization or dislike our society. It's because that we love it so much that we want to make sure that it, it works for every single individual. We want to make sure that every single individual is able to love that organization as exciting just as much as we do. Marcus, I wanted to get to um, one of the key points in your article, which gets to the idea of intrusive leadership. And in your article, you called for, you gave the example of about a year and a half ago when the Coast Guard as an organization went through a really hard time with the misappropriation, the partial government shutdown, Coast Guard people lost a paycheck. Uh, you know, temporarily they were they were paid in arrears later, but there was a period, there was a you know a couple of weeks there where Coast Guard people did not get paid, and there was um, a, a huge effort by senior leadership in the Coast Guard to push down to the deck plates and to ask people, hey, how are you doing? How are you managing this problem? This this very difficult time. And you, you hearken back to that as a good example of explicit, intrusive leadership in the Coast Guard. And you said that this is a time right now with this racial tension going on in America where these killings that you mentioned, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd, um, that this is a time for Coast Guard leaders to do the same thing now, to reach down to people you know, in their commands who may be wearing the same mask that you're wearing, right? Hiding those inner feelings and ask them the simple question, how are you doing? How are you feeling, right? So talk about that a little bit. And then I wanted to hear uh, Chief's comments on that same topic from the Chief's mess, from the goat locker in the Navy, that perspective. The idea of intrusive leadership is not a foreign concept. We know how to do this. We do this all the time. If somebody loses a family member, we ask them, how are you doing? Are you okay? Take the time that you need. You need some more time. You need somebody to talk to. We know how to do that. As I mentioned with the lapse of appropriation, it was important to us to make sure that as we safely execute our mission, that the only way that was going to happen was to make sure that the people that were executing the mission were in a place where they can do it safely. And during the lapse of appropriation, that meant that we needed to check to make sure that the pressures and what was going on at home, outside of the actual workplace, wasn't at a point where that person couldn't focus. So we had to ask. Matter of fact, I remember every time we changed over for duty, or we were going through a pre-flight brief, we would ask about your financial well-being because we just wanted to make sure that people were okay and that they can safely execute the mission. So the idea of intrusive leadership to me is not foreign. Once again, we do it with, if we think there's a problem with suicide, we actually train leaders on certain things that you can look for in a member that might indicate that there's something else going on and you need to ask. I think what is foreign is intrusive leadership in this moment, in moments like this, dealing with racial tension and dealing with racial issues. And I think, you know, I'm a little optimistic and I really think that part of the reason why this conversation gets ignored or there's a lot of hesitancy to have this conversation when it deals with race is because in the military, we're a solutions-driven society. I've been taught ever since I was at the academy that you don't go to your supervisor you don't go to your commanding officer with a problem without also having a recommendation. We bring solutions, right? With this, what's the solution? 
what's the recommendation? You know, it's tough to wrap your head around. If somebody was dealing with the loss of a loss of a family member, I can tell them, hey, here's some services. Go talk to the chaplain. If somebody was dealing with something financial, I could say, hey, here's here's some outlets. Here's the food bank. Here's the USO. Here's some recommendations on how I can help you address your pain, how I can help you fix this problem. With this conversation about race, I don't know how many people really have the solution. I know I don't have the 100% solution. So I think there's a hesitancy in starting the conversation without having the solution, without having a recommendation. So I wanted to let I wanted to let people know that in this moment, don't let that stop you from simply asking, are you okay? Acknowledging the possibility that there could be some extra pain, extra stress that's going on. And listen, at that point, once you ask, just listen. You don't have to give your opinion. You don't have to, you know, you shouldn't be doing a lot of the talk. And you should just be listening. If that person wants to open up and talk about what they're thinking about, talk about how, mentioned that she has a son, I, I believe it was a son. Uh, how is that being a mother? What conversations is she having to have with her son? How did that make her feel? I mean, everybody has different experiences, but those are the things that you you allow yourself to learn about if you open yourself up when you just simply ask, are you okay? And you listen. Well, Chief, you, you gave a couple of examples there at the outset. One was very extreme in terms of the dependent of your work center supervisor using uh, the N-word, and the other was sort of a softer form of bias where that same guy just didn't engage you in an informal setting to a, to a noticeable degree. When you hear the commander talking, what comes to mind to you in terms of what is actionable about what has been teed up as a function of what's happening out you know, in Minneapolis and across America? I want to start by saying I think I would be given my, my story in injustice if I didn't tell you that there was a second-class sailor. Um, he was a, a Caucasian male who heard this. I did not know he heard this. He was very upset, and he filed a complaint. And um, the reason why it's important for me to mention that is because although um, I had a very toxic leader, there was also a junior sailor who stepped up and did the right thing when I actually, as a young sailor, didn't have the courage or the confidence or didn't believe that people would uh, back me in that. So I would like to point that out. Um, nothing really came of it, but it starts with people standing up and saying something. So I would like to just say that. Well, so um, before we leave that point, so the, the nothing ever came of it, because I was going to ask, how did that net out, right? Did the atmosphere get better? Nothing. Right? So we know, haven't solved uh, it, right? That's kind of the problem. Really got better when that uh, particular leader uh, left. So was he disciplined in any way to, to, that, that was noticeable? Was his career impacted? Was there a letter put in his eval? No, not to my knowledge, no. Okay. That right there is a key point. This situation was known, and there was no accountability for it. And the situation got better for Chief when he rotated, but he rotated to another unit. How many more people of minorities, African-American, and who knows all the different groups that he had a problem with, but how many more people did he end up supervising? How many more evaluations did he end up doing where he had that racist bias going into it? Did he ever sit on any panels where people were selecting folks for assignments or things like that? I mean, that's the issue. It was known, and nothing was actually done about it. And you also mentioned the play the race card phrase early on, Chief. And, and so I'm just thinking that, okay, good on your shipmate for flagging it and, and, and 
making a statement or whatever he did officially. But how did this resonate across the work center, across the command? Were the white members of the command allowed to get away with the attitude, even implicit, that use the race card in the face of overt and profane bias? Is somebody allowed to walk away from this? Does it net out that the the, the main takeaway is Alicia played the race card? Because I think that happens too often as well in terms of how do we allow this to simmer? And the reason I'm saying this, and you guys probably are aware of the fact that we had a very senior trustee, a retired 06 Supply Corps officer who I know, his brother happens to be a classmate of mine, who was just flagged because Facebook Live was inadvertently on in his house as he was watching TV, and he and his wife were going off. It sounded like a Klan rally. So this is a guy of the highest, he was an 06, right? He, to your point, Marcus, about how many evals did he write? How many boards did he sit on? And in the case of folks that are in the Jacksonville area uh, vying to enter the Naval Academy, what did he do, as you talk about the seven in your class, what did he do to change that calculus in the favor of of white candidates over the time he's done this? To me, it's it's just, it's nauseating to hear them talk on Facebook Live. But this is what's the most dangerous, because this, this family did not talk like this out in the open. It's ironic. I got the new issue of Shipmate, which is our alumni association magazine, just last night. And his name is all over this thing in a, in a way where he's a trustee and he's a you know, class of 80 and here he is at the golf tournament. And in the local chapter, it's like, hey, we're doing this a fundraiser. So this is the dangerous part. Never mind a, a supervisor whose kid uses the N-word because he heard it from dad. What about this kind of bias? And, and so that's what, what I think we seriously have to root out and I think this is back to the point where we're talking about it has to be spot corrections, right? This is this is improvement in the social situation, inequality by a million different spot corrections along the way. Am I right here, Chief? What do you think? Absolutely. I think it starts with changing the culture. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about it. We're always... Uh, as you know, leaders in the armed forces, we're given extensive amounts of leadership training. But are we really implementing it? And to kind of um, touch on having those difficult conversations with the sailors in, in a perspective from a chief in the chief's mess, I'm going to tell you that conversation needs to be had at every single level of leadership. Um, I will tell you, um, I haven't had that conversation in my immediate uh, uh, supervisor level, but permission for me to step up and ensure that I have that conversation with my sailors. And again, we're taught this extensive, you know, level of leadership. Um, John C. Maxwell's uh, law number 10, leaders connect with others, but we can't be selective of when and what topics we uh, connect with our sailors about. Um, I will tell you, I've been having a hard time lately, uh, extremely emotional, but you know, I'm older. I, I'm, you know, what about those young sailors who don't know how to deal with their emotions? Are we asking those difficult questions? And I would just say we have to have those conversations. We can't change anything overnight, but I tell you, uh, it starts with setting the example, listen more, talking less, and being informed. Um, we have to start somewhere. And there's definitely a culture that when you come to work, you don't talk about it. But how can you get after something we're not talking about? How can you be informed if you're not listening to those individuals on the opposing side of this. And so um, although we can't change it overnight, I think it's absolutely imperative that we have those difficult conversations. That's a great point about the importance of having the conversation, right? And Marcus, you know, you tee up in your proceedings article, the importance of just that intrusive leadership of asking people, how are you doing? How are you, how are you coping at this moment, right? Which is a very personal, uh, it's a personal question, but, and it's a personal kind of conversation. It's a one-on-one -on -one kind of a conversation, but it's part of, or it maybe it gets, gets a start on the greater conversation about what, you know, what does this moment in America mean? And what is, you know, I was having a conversation with this, uh, about this with our CEO, Admiral Daly, and, and about what he wanted to put in his CEO notes for the upcoming issue of the magazine about this issue, right? 
And one of the things we, we came up with was asking people to write. You know, it, we, we pointed out the, the fact that, you know, in 1948, President Truman signed an executive order that made it illegal for uh, discrimination in the armed forces on the basis of race, creed, sex, et cetera, right? And so that's been 72 years now. And the military has often prided itself on being sort of leading society. But we're, we're seeing and we're hearing from both of you that the progress hasn't been enough, right? The progress has not been fast enough and it hasn't. So what are we, that, that conversation as it happens, as it starts very personal, how are you dealing right now personally to how is this organization dealing with this moment and dealing with this issue? How, how are we rooting, rooting out the guy, like uh, Ward mentioned, the class of 1980 Naval Academy, Navy captain, leader of the Jacksonville chapter of the Alumni Association, and he and his wife just outed themselves on Facebook Live with this racial screed a couple of days ago. And you go, oh, my God. And to Ward's point, you know, how many promotion recommendations did he make? How many promotion boards did he sit on? How many evals did he write? How many fit reps did he write in the course of his history of his career that could have, you know, adversely probably did adversely affect people of color uh, in his command. Right. So that's uh, that's a very powerful conversation to have. You said it uh, very well earlier, uh, number one, um, that being held accountable. I'm sure he didn't wake up that way. It's been happening from 01 to 06 and who was calling them out and holding them accountable. And oftentimes it's the peers of the people that they feel most comfortable with that they express derogatory comments, say things. And I think people have to hold people accountable because one day they will be the leaders that are making these decisions. And I also think that uh, when, when you are that E1 and that E2 and that E3, that when you're being informed and you're learning and you have an open mind to learn, see, if you're in the Navy or any uh, of the armed forces and you're not having that talk, you're growing up in the ranks, acting like it doesn't exist. You're not learning from others. You're learning about the job and the mission, but you're not actually learning about the individual and um, we're not just bodies that are here to do the mission. We're the biggest asset. We're the people, and we matter. And so when we're having those conversations, what happened to you in your life? How do you feel? And if you're getting those lessons um, in boot camp, if you're getting those lessons at Naval Academy, if you're talking about those things instead of dismissing them, you'll be a more well-informed leader. But we're just not having those conversations. And I think that a lot of the organ, uh, armed forces are doing a great job with the leaders are doing a great job making a statement, saying something, not being silent, acknowledging it, but it needs to happen at every level. And the reason why is because sailors need to know that my immediate supervisor is not the kind of immediate supervisor that I talk about in my story. I want to know that he cares because People may assume that your silence means that you don't care, right? It may mean that you're in agreement. So I think it's important that, I know I sound a little repetitive here, but we got to talk about it. This culture has to change. Um, when I come to work, no matter what I'm feeling, if I've had moments where I sat in my car as well. Um, when I come to work, I have to turn it off. I can't say how I feel. We just act like it doesn't happen. I don't. I can't stay for... Uh, other workplaces, but I'm going to tell you everything that's going on when I walk in into work, we kind of don't talk about it. We act like it doesn't exist, but it's still affecting our sailors. So that conversation needs to happen at every level. Chief, you, you just des- described the, the hard part, which is framing it in, in how you feel from the parking lot to uh, the, the workspace uh, in a way that's that a makes sense to the rest of the folks involved and B has some level of actionable next steps. And I think when you're talking about in terms of, Hey, you guys had a party and you didn't invite me. Right. I mean, those kinds of examples, even in an informal setting, when you frame it like that, then it becomes like the implicit bias. Uh, Cause I'm assuming people wouldn't do that just because you're black, but let's just say that their social circle is what it is. And then little by little, it starts to be bias, right? And and until, and the burden shouldn't be on the minority. The burden should be on the command to get it right. But this is what we're talking about in terms of if it, the burden is on you, chief, as you know, because this is what you're telling us, 
to frame it in a way where it makes sense to those who don't even realize that they're being, um, even on the margins, uh, racist, you know? And, and that's the hard part because otherwise we're all like, oh, the Navy's colorblind and isn't it beautiful, this, this social experiment that since Truman wrote that executive order, we've gotten it right. We all know that's, that's total BS. To Marcus's point, and it was brilliant about that attitude at the Coast Guard Academy, because we've seen it. I've seen it in flight school. I've seen it in squadrons. In those moments, you have to go, whoa, tilt. Don't say that around me. And please don't say that. You know, and so those are where the, the teachable moments happen. And, and we know that to the point about, you know, Captain Bethman, to name him, there was, he would, just like a cult, you know, you kind of figure out who's around you. And if I throw this out, do people push back or not? And then you find what you're capable of and you find who you can hang out with and express these attitudes. So if that's in a command structure, like in your, on the mess decks or in 96 man birthing or in the squadron spaces, whatever, um, this is where each and every one of us has to do the right thing each and every moment. And that's not easy, you know, and that takes a lot of rigor. So I'm sorry, Marcus, I cut you off. You had a point. The reason why I feel it is so important for the military in general to get this right, to continue to look at themselves in the mirror and figure out ways to improve identify areas where they're falling short is because we have a profession that we depend on each other. Each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, depend on each other with our lives. When I go fly, we fly as a crew and all of our lives are at stake. And also, some of our sailors, some of our coasties, airmen, whatever have you, their whole life is within the military confine. They live on the ship. They live in the barracks. They live in based housing. So much of their life is consumed by the military that we have to take care of the total person because it's not, you know, it's not just a plant worker that's coming and just on the plant line and they're just doing their job and then they go home and that's it. Like it is vitally important for our services, every last one of them to get this right and continue to apply the pressure in identifying the shortcomings and eliminating them. So that's one thing. It's very interesting to me as I hear you talk about people that you know that have said these things. It really sounds very similar to the conversations about when we talk about sexual predators, where all of a sudden you look up and you're like, whoa, I would have never thought that. But then you actually dig deeper and you find out that that person had been doing things for years People have seen stuff, just never said anything, you know, erased it or ignored it. And that person just kept on going. And then they got emboldened. They got a little bit more careless with their actions. And then when it finally actually comes out, now it's a huge thing. And then everybody says, how could this have happened? For so long. Or worse, or worse, they say, this doesn't surprise me because way back when we were lieutenants together, you know, I was on liberty with this guy and he was talking like, you know, stars and bars. You know, that's worse even than I didn't ever see this in this guy. Exactly. Sexual predators, racial predators. There's a lot of similarities between that. It's funny that you bring up the correlation between sexual predators because I'd even add that I would compare this to sexual assault in that people often ask, why did she not speak out? Why did she wait until, you know, she spoke out and she spoke out to say anything? Because I didn't think anyone would believe me because I thought that they would blame me, right? And I would say the same thing even in my situation where I didn't speak up for myself because I thought 
No one else heard it. Maybe they would think I was playing the race card. So I think there's power and strength in numbers. And so we have to, not only our peers and the people who hear it, but when it's being done to you, you have to speak up, right? Um, because that empowers other people to speak up, right? So as a, um, a victim of sexual assault, I feel like, you know what? She has the same story. Maybe since there's two of us, um, someone will believe me. So there's two sides to that. There's the peers that are listening that aren't speaking up while the sexual or predatory behavior is going on. And there's the victims who aren't speaking up. And both of these things are enabling uh, this predatory behavior or this racist behavior to cultivate um, and advance up the ranks without really being um, acknowledged or reprimanded. Yeah, I think that added to the what Marcus is talking about in terms of the the concept of intrusive leadership is a winner, right? So if if it's up to the subordinates, the junior sailors, the junior coast guardsmen, to find each other and get their story straight and then take it up the chain of command, we're we're probably not going to get very far. But if that is happening combined with a, a command structure that's receptive to hearing these things, then and is also proactive with setting a tone that suggests that I'm I'm here for you in a sincere way, then we're maybe on the verge of of real change. It, it the the burden cannot fall on the subordinate. Yeah, I think Ward, that's a really good point, and I think it brings it around to the importance of having that first conversation that Marcus brought up in his article of just that that question, right? When the senior asks the junior person, how are you doing with this, with this situation, with what's happening in America right now, you start to set that command tone because that junior person hears not only a compassion, but also hears that the, my supervisor, my commanding officer, my XO, my command master chief, they care about this issue. They, they are listening to what's happening in society and they recognize that that's having an impact on me. And so that can help embolden the young person when there is a problem to say, hey, there's a problem here. There's a problem. It's not just out there, but it's also I got a problem in the barracks. I got a problem in the 80 man birthing. Uh, you know, I don't feel safe, whether it's a woman who is feeling you know, sexual predators or whether it's a, a, a minority person feeling that there's you know, a supervisor or people in their workspace or living space that makes them feel unsafe too, right? So I think that that's part of setting the tone. It's part of, of making the conversation capable of happening at both levels, at supervisor levels and at the junior levels. I, I guess if I was to answer the question is, you know, what do I really hope will happen now moving forward? And it's really two parts. It goes back to those conversations. I hope that there's more conversations on the personal level so that members feel more cared about. Those that those that are struggling a little bit, they get a little bit more support. So I hope that happens on the individual level. But on the organizational level, I hope that leaders, supervisors, the chief's mess, the wardroom, I hope that even if there isn't an African-American in that specific mess at the unit, they still do some self-reflecting and say, what are things we can do to better this situation? How can we move our ship? How can we move our air station? How can we move our organization further down the line of progress? You know, how can we learn? How can we understand these different dynamics? You know, are we mentoring every junior sailor the same? You know, do all of my mentees that I'm investing in, do all of them look like me? Do all of them remind me of myself when I was younger? You know, what about the other J.O. that I, I, I don't actually see myself in because they're of different ethnicity or different gender? You know, am I giving them the same attention? You know, am I letting them know that they're valued? Am I letting them know that they can achieve whatever goals that they set? So I think that's it. How are we recruiting? You know, 
Are we going to these neighborhoods that we often just pass by to see if there's some talent there? You know, these are the conversations that I hope that are happening as well. Once we get past the individual personal, because I think that's more immediate, we got to make sure that everybody's ready to hit the mission. You know, here at my air station, you know, we, we already had a tropical storm in the Gulf. You know, we're still doing the mission. So it's important to make sure everybody's taken care of first to make sure that we can execute the mission. Again, beyond that, once people leave the streets and there's no more protests, once things die down a little bit, we still have to have the conversation about what we can do organizationally to make it better. Systematic change is necessary. And I think uh, we must communicate authentically. We have to know our subordinates and knock down those barriers. And it's at every level. It's not just the junior sailor that's going through it and needs to speak up or needs to have that conversation. Um, Commander Kennedy said he would, he wished that someone would ask him how he felt. And I think we need to be uh, reminded that we all need that at every level. And, um, I believe that a culture shift needs to happen. And I believe that it will. And, uh, to piggyback back off Commander Kennedy, when this is all gone, um, I hope that we don't stop and we keep having the conversation, not just now, but, um, forever. So thanks to Commander Kennedy and Chief Malone for being with us on the podcast today. Thanks to the commander for his article, which is on USNI.org right now, uh, called Racial Tension in America Requires Intrusive Military Leadership. We have other things pertaining to this current issue, some historical perspective and also uh, other thoughts from around the fleet, around the sea services on on this, this subject. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.